0: Well, you have probably been on either the receiving end or the giving end of this type of conversation, where there has been a warning from a parent to a child, and there has been a reaction, perhaps, of like, eh, whatever, and that has been followed with, one day you'll understand, One day you'll understand why I'm telling you these things. One day you will understand why I am giving you these warnings and it is for your own good and for your own benefit. While those dynamics are not exactly the same, that's a little bit what it feels like at times with Jesus and his disciples or Jesus and the crowds. He's telling them things that they need to know but that they don't yet understand. And there's this kind of hint of, well, one day you will understand. One day you will know. And as we think about our passage for this morning and just kind of where we're at in the context, we are right here on the doorstep of Jerusalem. Since 9.51, Luke 9.51, where Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he has been on a mission. He has been dead set on going to Jerusalem where he said, we saw two weeks ago in in chapter 18 he said that he would be delivered over to the gentiles he would be mocked and shamefully treated spit upon flogged killed and that he would rise on the third day and remember that was the third time that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to the cross so there's been this repetition there's there's been this like i'm telling you what's going to happen i'm reminding you i'm warning you and there's kind of this still not them not totally getting it so we're we're really here now at in the last so this is this is like probably in maybe the morning of Palm Sunday. Uh, this is bef- before the triumphal entry. We're kind of entering into now the last week of Jesus' life and minist- earthly life and ministry, uh, where he's gonna have the triumphal entry. Uh, we'll see that next week. He's gonna go to the cross. He's gonna rise from the dead. He'll asc- ascend into, the, into heaven and all of these things are not only a fulfillment of his own teaching the things that he's been talking about it's a fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies so all of this stuff is coming to a head right here and we're going to be looking at all of these things in the next over the next 10 weeks as we finish chapter 19 through chapter 24 and we'll see the unfolding of, of all that has come before in the first 19 chapters and really the drama is about to intensify in In this whole gospel account. And I think this parable, in a lot of ways, is a very fitting conclusion to this long travel narrative that we've looked at from chapter 951 all the way up to here to 19, to the place that we have arrived at here. So one of the interesting things about this parable is that Jesus gives a very clear and a very direct warning here. And we're going to look a little bit at the context in which he gave the parable and then we'll unpack the parable itself. So the question that we're ultimately looking at, if you're a note taker that we're going to get to, uh, well, you don't even need to write this down. It's the title of the sermon. (laughs) The question that we're going to get to is, will we heed Jesus' warning? Will we heed Jesus' warning? But first, we need to understand why this parable was communicated to the original audience. And we're going to be looking at three things now, for those who are taking notes, uh, we're going to be looking at three things about the parable, and then we'll wrap it up with three applications for us today. So the three things we're going to look, be looking at today are first, the parable's purposes. Second, the parable's problems. And third, the parable's resolutions. So purposes, problems, and resolutions. First, we come to the parable's purposes in verse 11. Luke tells us, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So I love Luke's details. He, he gives us a lot of extra details that some of the other gospel writers don't give us. Uh, occasionally, he'll give uh, the purpose of why Jesus gave these parables and just I, I flipped through Matthew and Mark as I was preparing, and I, I didn't see any instances in the parables in Matthew and Mark where Matthew and Mark give this kind of narrative description of why Jesus told this parable. There may be I didn't see them, uh, but that's kind of kind of indicative of how Luke writes, like giving all these extra details of things, very very in depth. So he gives us this explanation here. Uh, we also saw this a, a few weeks ago when Chris preached on the Pharisee and the tax collector passage in chapter 18, It's he, Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he he sets the stage before the parable telling you like, this is why this parable was told so that when Jesus tells the parable, you're not kind of wondering like, what is this about? Which happens with some of the other parables that we feel kind of like, I have no idea what he's talking about here, but this is very clear. We're given this reason. So we need to pay attention to that, especially here in verse 11. We're given these two different reasons. The first one is that be, is because he was near to Jerusalem. So again, we're wrapping up this whole travel narrative section. Jesus is about to go to the cross. So the message here to the crowds and to us as we read it is now is the time to sit up and pay attention. This is something important is about to happen. Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem. So this parable that he's about to give has some serious significance Another thing is that in this immediate context it says as they heard these things there in verse 11 they is talking about the grumblers back in verse 7 that James talked about last week though they are the ones who were upset because Jesus went to be a guest in Zacchaeus's house he went to eat with tax collectors and sinners so this is the crowds who are are hearing Jesus tell this parable. So again, that, that sense of warning uh, is very strong, and it's given uh, to, to those uh, who he was just talking to, and he's, he's telling them what's about to take place. The second reason is that it says, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now again, this is really important as we think about this idea of, of the disciples not really fully understanding what was going on. And Luke is very deliberate in pointing this out. He does it in Luke and in Acts. We saw this earlier in Luke chapter 17. Luke writes, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So there, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, these religious leaders who don't understand the the true dynamics of the timing and the coming of Jesus' kingdom. So that instance with the Pharisees and this instance here with these grumblers, these crowds who are mad that he's eating with Zacchaeus, These are not surprising if we know kind of how Jesus interacts with the crowds and the religious leaders. It's not surprising because they didn't get it. They didn't understand the purpose of Jesus' mission. But I think it's interesting because Luke also doesn't let the disciples off the hook for their lack of understanding. Very familiar passage for many of us. Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to, that, to them, but they're kept from, from knowing who he is. And uh, they say to Jesus, are you, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And then Jesus says to them, what things? And they go on to tell him uh, the things that have happened. And then they say this in verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Notice what's going on there? This guy who came and did all these miracles and said all these wonderful things. We thought he was going to be the king. We thought he was going to fight for us and set us free. But there he is in the grave. What are we going to do? And they say then, yes, besides all these things, it's now the third day since these things happened. So there's that. You probably know what happens after that. I'm not going to get into that now, but... So that's, that's an account uh, before the resurrection. But then even after the resurrection, Acts chapter one in verse six is where we see this. This is 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. So Luke tells us that Jesus has been with them. He has been speaking about the kingdom of God, okay? For 40 days, Jesus has been speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And the disciples still ask him in Acts 1, six, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still don't get it. And so Luke is very intentionally pointing this out to us. The crowds don't get it. The religious leaders don't get it. Even Jesus' own disciples, after he rose from the dead, after he spent 40 days talking about the kingdom of God, they're still saying, are you going to, is now the time? Is, is, are we going to get back to our, our rightful place as this, as this national people? <laughs> no, you guys don't get it. Well, what can we learn from this? Especially kind of as I talked about earlier, as Christians in America, not having experienced that type of earthly kingship and in the midst of an earthly kingdom that has maybe a lot of instability in our day. When we pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, Come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we pray that, are we susceptible to these same misunderstandings about the coming of the kingdom that the crowds were and that the, re- the religious leaders and that the, even Jesus' disciples were? Are we still susceptible to those same misunderstandings? And if so, how can we reorient our focus and properly prepare for our king's return? Not as Americans, not with ultimate regard for the future of this nation, but as citizens of the kingdom of God, with eyes and hearts that are firmly fixed on the king and his kingdom to which our ultimate allegiance belongs. How can we do that? I'm glad you asked, because that's at the heart of this parable. So let's dive in now to the parable. We're going to look at... The parable's problems, and that's in verses 12 through 23. Uh, Before we look specifically at the problems, though, just a kind of a quick summary of what is happening in this parable. We're told that a nobleman he's going into a far country to receive a kingdom, and then he's going to return. He calls his servants. He gives them each one minna, tells them to go and invest it and to use it wisely, and that he will return. So that's kind of the setting. That's how things kick off. We see then the first problem in verse 14. It says, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So there is hatred and rejection of this man being the one who would be their king and who would reign over them. Nevertheless, he returns now as king over his kingdom and he asked for, for a report from his servants to see what they have done with the minnas that he gave to them. Now, a minna uh, was about three months wages for a day laborer. So uh, this could be equivalent to maybe like ten dollars to $15,000 today. Uh, the first servant comes and he gives a good report that his one minna made 10 minas, And he gets praised for being faithful and he is given authority over ten cities. The second servant comes and also has a good report that his one Minna has made five Minas and he gets authority over five cities. Now we talked a little bit already about um, some of the exaggeration in Jesus' parables, and that seems to be the case here. Uh, the the profit that is made uh, in these transactions, Hardly seems to justify someone getting authority over 10 cities. Uh, it was, you know, a fairly substantial amount that, that the servant with 10 and the servant with five made. But given this authority over 10 cities does not seem to be necessarily uh, the equivalent of, of what they actually deserve. So in an earthly sense, this parable seems to be a little bit exaggerated. Um, now hold that thought because we're going to come back to that. In a little bit so that's that was the first problem the, the hatred and uh, the rejection of the king now we see the second problem as we see this third servant come to the king and say in starting in verse 20 he said lord here is your minnow which i kept laid away in a handkerchief for i was afraid of you because you are a severe man you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow now, one other quick thing, we've talked about this a little bit as we've been going through Luke, especially in the parables. Uh, we can't always just make a one-to-one correlation that every single detail in the parable like is about, is, correlates to something in reality. Um, scholars are, debate about this parable a little bit, whether or not uh, the, this noble man who becomes a king is, is representative of Jesus or not. Um, probably most of the scholars that I read say it, it think, believe that it is, some don't. And the reason that some don't is because verses 20 and 21, they say, well, you know, Jesus is not this severe man who, who takes, or, you know, uh, takes what he doesn't deposit and reaps what he doesn't sow. So that, so this parable can't be about Jesus. But again, we need to be careful that we don't just take every single detail in every parable and say, oh, well, this perfectly describes Jesus, you know, it more describes the situation that's going on. Um, So again, that's just kind of a word for when you're reading a parable, like kind of being careful of how you interpret it, um, so I think it's probably talking about Jesus and his his role with with his servants and his his getting the kingdom. Uh, but I I don't think verses twenty and twenty one are a description of what Jesus is like uh, in in the sense that this uh, servant thought. So so again, the problem here is. Uh, unfaithfulness in this situation it's unfaithfulness with what they've been given and misunderstanding of the king and what he requires so these two problems that we see here both the hatred and the rejection and here this this unfaithfulness and this misunderstanding of, of the king and what he requires this is a very intentional indictment by jesus of the people of israel in his day Not only did they not know what he is really like and what he requires, they actually hate him and reject him. So that part of the parable is very clear, very clearly directed at the people who are hearing it. And again, we have to remember this because Jesus is right on the doorstep of Jerusalem here. In just a few hours, he's going to ride into the city on a donkey while the the crowd shouts, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And five days later, they will shout away with him, crucify him. We have no king, but Caesar. In five short days, they go from blessed is the king to we have no king, but Caesar. So I think this parable is totally relevant in light of what is about to actually go down over the next five days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And I think the beauty of Jesus' parables and teaching is that it exposes the hearts of sinful humanity in any and every generation. This isn't just a reminder that was needed for the Jews of Jesus' day. This is a reminder that is needed for us here today. We are confronted by these same truths as we sit here 2,000 years later with the same heart idolatries, with the same inability to see who Jesus is and what he came to do. And I think it's helpful to see the king's response in the parable as we try to navigate our appropriate response to the king's demands. So that's what we're gonna see lastly here, the parable's resolutions, the parable's resolutions in verses 24 to 27. So the king tells those who stood by to take the single minna from the third servant and to give it to the first who already had 10 And these bystanders sense that this seems like an unbalanced response. They say in verse 25, Lord, he has 10 minas. But then the king lays down this important kingdom principle in verse 26. He says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, interestingly, the same principle is explained by Jesus in Matthew 13, after he tells the parable of the sower. And then he explains the purpose of his parables. Um, Jesus, he's explaining how, when he explains the purpose of the parables, he's explaining how God's divine prerogative is to, to open some hearts and open some eyes, but not open others. And when the disciples in Matthew 13 asked Jesus, "Why, Jesus, why do you speak to the crowd in parables? He tells them this. He says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. Listen to this. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, clearly here, Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13, he's talking about the understanding and the perception of spiritual things as he goes on to quote the passage about God's hardening of hearts and God's closing of eyes in Isaiah chapter six. So I think it's probably safe to say that the parable of the menace has a similarly spiritual meaning and application. This isn't Jesus here promoting a rich getting richer and poor getting poorer teaching in terms of earthly possessions. So again, that connection with Matthew 13 and that there's a spiritual meaning here. There's a spiritual meaning in taking from some and giving to others who already have. This isn't talking specifically about earthly possessions. But if that first resolution of taking the one from the guy who only has one and giving it to the one who has 10, if that seemed a little harsh, then you'd better, you'd better buckle your seatbelts for the second part of this resolution in verse 27. The king says, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. William Hendrickson has a helpful explanation of this verse in his commentary. He writes, as to the parable's ultimate meaning, the reference is to what will happen to Christ's rejectors when he returns. If one is filled with revulsion at the thought that such vengeance is ascribed to a savior whose love and tenderness are beyond all imagination and description, might not the solution be that these very attributes make hating and rejecting such a savior worthy of supreme retribution? Do you hear what he is saying here? Let me paraphrase it. If you don't like this, your problem isn't with Jesus. Your problem is with you. It's your problem. If you read this and you don't realize that this king is worthy of complete honor and devotion and that these servants owe him his life and that he has every right to come and to slaughter those who rejected him, then it's not your problem. Your problem isn't with Jesus. Your problem is with your understanding of God's justice and his his grace and his mercy and how he can do this. If hating the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost, as we saw last week in verse 10, if hating this son of man, the very one who came to seek and to save the lost and to lay down his life for sinners, If this is the response from blind, hard-hearted sinners, then justice is served when they are slaughtered by the king. Let's apply that first to the Jews of Jesus' day, and then we'll come back to us. And to do that, let's go back to the very beginning of Luke's gospel, to Gabriel's birth announcement to Mary back in chapter 1. Gabriel says of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, he will be great and we will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign same word here when it same root word when it says that they do not want this king to reign over them okay so again very clearly the crowds here are not wanting Jesus to reign over them as king the people of Israel do not want Jesus to be their king but if we go back to his very birth announcement, it was told he will be given the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So from the very beginning, before he was even born, there's this promise that he's going to, this, this child that's gonna be born, he will reign over the house of Jacob, the long awaited King, the Messiah that the people have been waiting for for generations, for thousands of years, he's here. And he's going to reign, and his kingdom is going to have no end. And Jesus backed this up with his perfect life and with his teaching, with his healings, with his miracles. And again, here are these people who thought they were going to see the coming of the kingdom of God, but they totally missed it because they were looking in the wrong place for the wrong king. Let us not miss this king. So I've got three applications for us and we're going to work our way backwards through the parable from how we have just looked at it. The first application, there's an application and then I got a question for us to, to ponder. The first application is to be submissive. Be submissive to the king. The question is, are you, or you can ask it first person, am I submitting to Christ's reign? Am I submitting to Christ's reign in my life and in the world? Unlike the citizens of this parable, we should be those who love King Jesus and who want him to reign over us. Well, how do we do that? I mean, it's not always easy, but it's kind of simple, right? We obey him, we spend time with him, we read his word, we pray. We spend time with God's people as we encourage one another in obedience to him. And if this is not you right now, if you're not in this boat, if you're if you're the, the outsider looking in saying I'm not part of that kingdom and I'm, I'm not willing for Jesus to reign over my life, then my plea to you is let him reign over your life. Submit to him. Give him your life. The king is coming back and if you're not His, you're going to be slaughtered. That's not a popular thing. That's not easy to get up here and say, to look to a room full of people and say, you might be slaughtered at the end if you don't trust in Jesus. But that's what his word says. That's what he tells us over and over. We owe him our lives. And the second thing is to be faithful. Be faithful. You can ask, am I investing my kingdom treasures, am I investing my kingdom treasures and am I looking forward to a reward much greater than ruling over 10 cities? Again, I think that's where this exaggeration is, is really helpful because actually reigning over 10 cities is a, is a huge thing and, and what this these servants would have gained by that is, is, is a lot, right? But really in the grand scheme of things, what we will get as Christ one day, as those who belong to him, is going to be much greater than reigning over 10 earthly cities. I mean, in the parable, it's, it's astronomical, right? But in reality, like in future glory, that's nothing. Like 10 cities, who cares? So the way we can think about this, um, are we be, am I investing my kingdom treasure? It's not just money. Uh, I, I like to think about the three T's, time, talents, and treasures. Uh, How am I investing my time? Uh, Not just time with the Lord, but just my my time in the world, my time with family, my time with friends, my time serving others. How am I investing my time? How am I investing my treasure? Uh, That we can talk about financially, right? How are, are we being faithful with the things that God has entrusted to us financially? And then how am I investing my talents? How am I investing those things that God has given me? Maybe your unique skills and abilities, right? right? If you have a, you have a unique skill set, uh, how are you investing those skills and those talents for the kingdom of God? And then third is be prepared. So be submissive, be faithful, be prepared. The question you can ask yourself is, am I ready for the king's return? Am I prepared am I ready for his return am I waiting for the right king in the right kingdom and as we think about this I think it's really comes down again to the question of ultimate allegiance where is my ultimate allegiance is it to this world and the things of this world maybe this world system maybe it's a political party or maybe it's the Green Bay Packers or whatever it might be, the thing that you give your most time and energy to or is your ultimate allegiance to Christ and to his kingdom? And this is very much related and we can kind of work our way back through those things, right? This is very much related to to faithfulness. If we're prepared, then we're probably going to be faithful. And if we're being faithful, we're probably being submissive, right? They're all kind of intertwined. They all kind of work together. So I really want to encourage you all to take some time, uh, whether it's today, later this afternoon, or this week, and take some time to examine yourself before the Lord and to ask these questions that are related to these three areas of of preparation, of faithfulness, and of submission. And and ask the Lord uh, to to search your heart and and be challenged. Be challenged that uh, a lot of us, we know we have a long way to go, uh, right? In, in greater preparation and greater faithfulness and greater submission to our King. But the good news is that it is His grace uh, that allows us to do those things. It is not our effort, right? I'm not asking you to go and you know make a list of all the ways that you're failing and just beat yourself into the ground and feel guilty about it, Right? I'm asking you to go before the Lord and to seek his face and to ask him to help you see how you can grow in these areas and for him to give you the strength to, to follow through and to, to be prepared and to be faithful and to be submissive. So let us seek to do that, brothers and sisters. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for um, the cross. We thank you for the good news that our savior Lay down his life, that he went willingly, um, that he faced the rejection of sinful men and women, that he faced the hatred and the mocking, that he went and laid down his life so that we might live. God, thank you for your grace that awakens us to our sin and to our need for a savior. We thank you for your grace that allows us uh, to do the things that we are challenged to do in this parable, to be prepared, to be faithful and to be submissive to the King. God, it is not by our own strength. It is not by our own understanding that these things happen in our lives, but it is your grace and your grace alone. So Lord, I ask that you would work in each one of us uh, this week as we, as we think through these things and, and always, uh, Lord, as we seek to, to follow you as your people. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.